Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Our kingdom was stolen from me. My heart knows only revenge. Welcome to Syndicate, a film and TV podcast. From our screens to your watch list, we gather to share and discuss your next favorite. Join us as we want you to spend less time scrolling and more time watching. And now, here's your host, Armand Haddad. Hello and welcome to another episode of Syndicate. I am your host, Armand Haddad. This season we are shining the spotlight on art house films and the power of cinema within our lives. Today's focus is on the 2022 Viking epic, The Northman, by director Robert Eggers. To unpack this film, I'm accompanied by filmmaker Cam Lewis. Cam, welcome back to Syndicate. Thanks, I'm happy to be here and happy to be talking about a movie like this. You know, it's funny because like, Last time you were on, we talked about the tragedy of Macbeth, and now we're talking about another movie that's inspired from an old tale. So we're talking about The Northman. So before we go you know, too deep into it, how did you first discover The Northman? So I think it came up probably initially through the A24 Facebook group that I'm a part of. Uh, just be, And actually, I think you invited me to that group in the first place. Yes, yes, um, <laughs> but I think, yeah, way back when they started making this before COVID even, I think that somebody had posted pictures of the Icelandic Viking village set that they had built as like a teaser sneak previews type of a thing. And even just that image for me, I mean, I'm definitely, I, I like historical um or history, I like learning about history and particularly medieval and Viking history and things like that. So even just those behind the scenes images immediately turned me on to like, oh, this is something I want to keep track of. And then saw that it was Robert Eggers uh, who had done The Witch. And I don't know if I'd seen The Lighthouse by that point, but The Witch I thought was a really interesting take on a historical subject like that, but done in a very cinematic approach to it. And so I was definitely excited for it from that point. Yeah, like... I was in your, I'm in the same exact boat because like with the Northmen, you know, I was a fan of Robert Eggers because I saw, you know, the lighthouse, I saw the witch when that came out and like his next film was like, you know, it'd be about Vikings and like, there's all these famous people in the movie and I'm like, oh my God, this sounds like amazing. (laughs) 
And so, yeah, I saw a lot of buzz on the Facebook uh, group that we're a part of. And, you know, how could you go wrong with Robert Eggers? How'd you go wrong? How could you go wrong with Vikings? So we just watched it. And I have to ask, what did you first think about the movie Walking Out of the Theater? Uh, walking out of the theater, I think one I was definitely impressed by the uh, thorough application of the specific style throughout is very uh, methodically approached and the sort of uh, how would I say it the a lot of like center central framing of characters and things like that very precise camera movements all the way throughout um, a very clean and consistent aesthetic of the sort of gloomy overcast look a lot of you know darker scenes and things like that so that was definitely what I was thinking um, but I think a question was on my mind as I left which was a little bit of where where does the film maybe land on whether revenge is a good thing or not? Because it, it kind of went back and forth throughout the movie. And, and especially earlier parts of the movie, I'm like, oh, wow, I feel like this is really going to put a spin on it where uh, revenge is definitely a bad thing. It's going to be kind of maybe uh, pointing out that this destroys things. But then by the end, uh, I wasn't so sure if maybe that was the approach it took. So I think that's what was on my mind as I walked out of the theater. You know, that's interesting that you brought that up because like as I was watching the film, you know, from from the very start before we go too into it, it's like it drops you into this bleak uh, past of like Vikings and, you know, shit hits the fan very quickly <laughs> and this character like essentially loses everything. And then by the end of the film, you as the audience go through his journey and then there's kind of a moment for the character to like decide which path they want to take mm -hmm. and the path they took, I was like, I'm surprised, but not surprised at the same time. <laughs> if this was like a more conventional film made, you know, more for a mainstream audience, maybe the character would have that turn of heart. Like, Oh, I've grown as a character. I don't need to <laughs> seek revenge, but that kind of goes against the ethos of the entire character up until that point. If you were to mm -hmm. just, you know, throw it all away. Cause like at the back of my mind, I was like, is he seriously just going to forget about the entire motivation for his character? Yeah, right. Yeah, that his entire life has been about up till this point. Yeah, <laughs> that there's been prophecies of. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, is this going to be satisfying? But then it was satisfying. I was very happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's an interesting approach, too. And kind of the thing that I was left with was the final image of the film, which I don't know if we want to you know, get into saying exactly what that is. But it definitely calls back to the Viking and Norse mythology that it is so... Um, uh, prevalent throughout the film. And so I think that tying it back to that, that had to be the correct ending, like for what their belief system was and how they understood, uh, you know, supernatural elements to work or afterlife and things like that, is that that was not only maybe the, the choice that made the most sense for his character arc of everything that had happened to him in his life up to that point, but also just from a sort of metaphysical perspective of somebody in that society, in that culture, that what would have been the sensible choice to do for those beliefs. Right. I, I mean, I think you hit it right on the head. Like that final shot was so powerful. I was moved. There's yeah. a tear in my eye. And like after and when the credits were rolling, the audience that I saw it with in the theater, they audibly said, wow. Whoa. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. So let's get into the plot of the film. So before we go into that, listeners of the show know what time it is. It's time 
for some elevator pitches. <laughs> Please stand clear of the closing door. So for those that don't know, Cam, you're very uh, accustomed to this. Uh, for those that don't know, if you're selling a movie on a friend, you really only have 60 seconds to do so. So here on Syndicate today, we're going to simulate that by putting 60 seconds on the clock. Cam, I need you to summarize The Northman in under a minute. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. We're going to start in three, two, one, go. All right, a young Viking prince named Amleth is set off on an epic journey when his father is murdered, and so he spends a lot of his life trying to figure out how he's going to exact his revenge on the murderer of his father and save his mother. And that sort of takes us through the you know first act of the film, and then he finally finds out where this guy is, and that launches us into the second act, and we see him go on this quest. It's really interesting how it brings in a lot of these epic quest elements into it uh, that we would be used to from other fantasy things, but then builds to this climax where, again, as we mentioned, Amleth must choose whether he will follow his fate or try to subvert fate and go off on another path. Yes, great. It's with like 20 seconds to spare. Oh, You're wow. so good at this. <laughs> <laughs> I should use more words, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so the, the story follows Amleth, uh, Alexander Skarsgård and it shows from like child to adult and when he was a child you know I can see where George R. R. Martin got his inspiration from you know I talked about this when we were going through Macbeth like you can see the the through lines of like from like classic literature into mm-hmm. the modern uh, adaptations we have today so now we're looking at this modern retelling of a classic story uh, about Amleth who is the inspiration for Hamlet, yes. another Shakespearean story. Are you familiar with Hamlet? Uh, I am. That one, if it was Shakespeare that I did read. It has been a while now, though, so I'm sure I'm, I'm a little spotty on the details. But <laughs> When you're sitting in the theater, were you watching it and be like, this is familiar? Why is this familiar? You know, honestly, I don't know that I would have made those connections due to my due to how long it's been since I've read Hamlet. Um, but it was, yeah, I just read that that connection existed, that it was inspiration for that. Uh, so yeah, I don't think I would have. Did you? Well, I'm a newbie when it comes to Shakespeare. I really only know uh, Romeo and Juliet and then Macbeth after watching the film with you. So I didn't make that connection. So I, I was completely on this roller coaster ride, uh, blind. I went mm-hmm. into it blind. I didn't do any research going into it. And like <laughs> the film grabbed me and took me to another world and I thoroughly enjoyed it. So yeah, what's interesting is the story follows Hamlet and that is the main inspiration for Hamlet. Uh, Structurally, they are the same, but set in two different locations on the earth. Uh, I think Hamlet is Danish and this is Icelandic. Mm -hmm. Um, So with this story, I mean, the ball gets rolling. Very, very quickly. So we have a young Amleth. He's on uh, the ramparts of the city that his father controls. He's he's the son of the king. And this king returns. Like episode one of <laughs> Game of Thrones, the king returns. And it's quite, it's quite a nice homecoming, but like it's dashed very quickly in this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you like to unpack that? Yeah, so I think it's interesting even in the in the obviously there's the major dashing when uh the king is killed, but even before that it seems that Amleth is much more excited about his father's return than his mother or his uncle. Mm-hmm. And so both mm-hmm. of those characters have a much cooler reaction to his return and that kind of sets up some expectations I think about uh how the rest of this film is going to unfold. And then 
after the the coming of age scene, which we could certainly unpack that as well, uh, the it, everything comes to a head really quickly. And it's almost like you can't tell if it's the next morning that this is about to happen or if more time has passed. But all of a sudden, the king is getting ambushed uh, outside of his home by masked figures as Amleth watches from behind a rock. And that results in the king's death, which, of course, results in Amleth fleeing and going off into the ocean quoting his mantra that uh, I will avenge you, father. I will save you, mother. I will kill you, Fjolnir. Yes. Like, so we're dropped into this world and I love how there's no exposition. And so the king is played by Ethan Hawke um, and the queen essentially is Nicole Kidman. And they are a great, you know, acting prowess displayed on film like this entire film is just star-studded with a whole bunch of yeah. <laughs> great actors Willem Dafoe, Anya Taylor-Joy, Alexander Skarsgård there's so many great uh, acting uh, figures in this movie and when Robert Eggers made this movie I don't know if it's just a lightning in the bottle but like <laughs> everything is like top-notch the acting is great. The cinematography is great. The The direction is great. The writing is incredible. The dialogue is great. And like you said, with that scene, with the king coming back to his home, there's a cool reaction. And I just thought it was a period piece. I thought it was just, oh, this is how they talked back then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> kind of weird riddles, a little bit guarded. But that later plays out in the story as uh, Amleth, fleeing from the destruction of his family, the destruction of his home, returns to avenge his father, to save his mother, and to kill uh, his uncle that uh, betrayed his dad. And it all makes sense. It's like those little setups have giant payoffs at the end of the story, and I didn't see it coming at all. <laughs> did you see that coming? I didn't see that coming at all. I did not see that coming. I was interested uh, how that was going to come to a head, and structurally, it's interesting. You you talked a little bit about how in Macbeth as well, you can see some of that classical story structure, and I think this film exhibited a lot of that as well with a very clear first act, and then he is given this sort of call to adventure by the prophet at that um, village in Russia, and then he goes off on this adventure, seems to be succeeding, and reaches this midpoint where there's this massive revelation, and then everything spins out of control, and then he's left with one more chance to fulfill this uh, quest that he is on. And so it follows that very uh, strict story structure, but in a way that's not flat or bland or anything like that, and exactly what you're saying is this whole setup of Act 1 gives you these seeds that come to fruition later on in the film to help create those moments of um, discovery where both the character and the audience are finding out this new information uh, that is world shattering. Exactly. And one of those seeds of revelation comes right in the beginning of the film uh, before the, the betrayal uh, of his father. So uh, Amalith is, I guess like 13 ish, you know, kind of like that pubescent age yep, yep. and his father is like you are no longer a boy you are a man and i shall <laughs> treat you as one so he takes him into i guess this hut with uh the jester who is also kind of like a sage or a, a mystic mm -hmm. and they take drugs <laughs> and they have a psychedelic journey and we're introduced to this concept of this royal lineage that's uh, Amalith is on and Amalith is father who is the king and it's this giant tree that is stemmed from you know all of their ancestors and it comes to a climax to 
amylith and it's like this is your destiny and Mm -hmm. that seed of like his destiny is planted right then and there and it's it's such a strong striking image right in the beginning of the movie that sets up one of the major themes yeah that destiny that sense of lineage that's very important especially culturally yeah yeah i think that that's helpful because it gives you some sort of a framework again uh without having to go into exposition heavy dialogue you get a sense of oh this is a culturally important thing that is going to have an impact uh it was interesting i read an article i think on indiewire with an interview with robert eggers and he was talking about how they did really want to maintain historical accuracy as much as possible um based on what at least we are able to know there's a lot of missing information from that time but the uh sort of psychedelic or hallucination drugs that they took were actually based on archaeological sites have found hensbane remains and then they just then surmised that that may have been mixed with mead and then taken mm. that way for these ceremonies and so even that like using that as a, a setup of a this is even though it seems so fantastical is actually rooted still in historical at least plausibility that mm. then leads to this really important understanding of the sort of cultural moment that amalith finds himself in that really then creates the backbone for why he feels so strongly about his quest. Yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting. You know, it's so interesting that all of these ancient societies, to have those supernatural encounters, they would take psychedelic drugs mm-hmm. uh, of whatever mixture, usually like a tea, you know, as described in this movie and uh, on IndieWire. It's just so interesting that Robert Eggers took the time to really research and do his homework to make it as accurate as possible while also telling this fictional tale. Mm -hmm. Um, You could see that also in The Witch as well. Like that also feels like a slice of life, but also has these fantastical elements of like, you know, Black Phillip. Yeah. And I think that groundedness is what makes it so impactful is that so much of the world feels so real that then it, it creates you know, a plausible space within which the more fantastical elements can happen without feeling like it's over the top. Right. It's uh, it's more grounded that way. Yes, yes. And the filmmaking also, you know, exemplifies that because, like, as uh, Amalith ages, you know, it's, it's beautiful hard cuts of, like, so he's going out to see, he's doing his mantra, and it hard cuts to him as an adult, and, like, you could see, like, you know, the, that, uh, that pain has weathered mm. him, has, yeah. has tempered his, his passion to, you know, fulfill his destiny to do his, you know, one big motive to avenge his father, save his mother, destroy, uh, the person that destroyed his entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, so Robert Eggers, I really love his direction because like, so I don't know what kind of society Amalith ended up in. It's a Viking society, and they're also mm-hmm. pillagers at the same time. And they ransacked this village, and it was about probably a couple minutes in, I realized, oh, wait a minute. This is one take, or made yeah. to look like one take. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, this is, this is really impressive. Yeah, it really it reminded me of, uh, have you seen The Revenant? No. Okay, well, uh, it's got a similar at the beginning of that film. There's these uh, French, I believe, traders, uh, the fur trade business, like around the French Mm -hmm. Indian wartime. 
and they come under attack from natives and are trying to run back to this riverboat and get on it. And the whole thing is, again, like one take moving through the space. And I think that that type of a thing works really well for this type of a scene because it forces you to stay in the intensity of it. You don't get a chance to look away through a cut to something else. And so although you might imagine that a fight scene needs to be cutting really quickly to keep up the intensity, I think a one take like this uh, creates a different type of tension and suspense as you're mm-hmm. moving throughout. And again, that really precise controlled movement, it's not some sort of like crazy handheld flying all over the place type of a thing, Jason Bourne style, but it's this right. very methodical camera that's moving throughout the space. Uh, and I, I wonder, I mean, I'm probably just falling into my film professor analysis <laughs> mode here, but you could almost connect that to the uh, nonstop movement of fate. Like he's on this path that's been faded. The prophecies are told that he needs to fulfill this thing and this slow methodical camera moving throughout this space. Nobody has control over it. It's sort of this otherworldly element moving throughout the space that is outside of the world and you can't stop it. It's just going to keep moving. Uh, So yeah, I wonder if there is any connection there. I think there has to be. No, I mean, you know, you're a director, so you know everything in the shot is intentional. All mm-hmm. the movements are intentional. Uh, so Robert Eggers is painting a story, illustrating it uh, on screen. So there probably is a reason why it's like that. And it's probably you, you're probably tapping into it, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but yeah, like, how did that affect you? That that wonder for that big battle scene. I did not expect that to happen. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't know what I was walking into. I just knew. I was I was a fan of the director. I really like all these actors mm-hmm. and the story intrigues me. I didn't expect it to be a story about betrayal and uh, avenging your your lost father. And I also didn't expect the camera work to be so I don't mean this as a backhanded comment, <laughs> so sophisticated. Yeah, I didn't yeah. expect a one take to be in mm-hmm. this film. And when it was occurring, I was like, oh. in that moment <laughs> I realized how good it feels to watch great cinema. You mm-hmm. know, I don't go out purposely to watch bad movies. It just happens. Whether it's the yeah, writing yeah. is bad, the camera work is is bad, mm-hmm. the audio sometimes is bad, and that's a really bad yep, situation. Yep. <laughs> um, but with this movie, like, having it being one shot, really focused in, for me, looking at the fight choreography, looking mm-hmm. at all the actors, like, everything is working in motion. Like, you can't just, like... Okay, let's start over mm-hmm. and then like redo yeah, right. that entire scene. So it's like everyone is like on their A game. Everyone's giving their mm-hmm. best performance because probably how many times are you going to do that? Yeah. Maybe twice? Yeah. Three times? Yeah. That was one thing Eggers actually talked about in that interview was that, and I mean, he said a few times since the, this process had started that this is one of the most difficult things he's ever done. Obviously, it's his third feature film, so it's not mm-hmm. like he's done 20 films or anything like that. But uh, even so, he said there were so many difficulties, one of which was they were shooting just with a single camera and trying to capture these really impressive choreographed scenes mm-hmm. um, that took a lot of people, a lot of, you know, all of the choreography. He even talked a little bit about uh, the costuming and how if people are getting splattered with blood, you need to change out costumes in between. Some of these things are happening <laughs> in the rain. And he said it was just horrible. And he would always feel horrible having to ask people to do another take. But he'd like, no, we need to do another take because the lens was fogged up in that one. So like, oh. sorry, guys, we got to do it. Uh, so yeah, wow. it's, it's impressive that they were able to pull that off. Uh, and I think it makes sense after hearing about some of that experience that he wants to go back to a smaller 
genre style film after this one to, to sort of recalibrate. But um, and I mean, having COVID hit in the middle of production and everything, I'm sure just made everything much, much worse. But the fact that he could go from his first feature, The Witch, to executing the vision of the Northman as his third film, like that's just mind blowing. And it's I mean, I think uh, it's kind of surprising maybe that the studios believed in him or that they were going to produce this with the budget that it had. Mm -hmm. But I think it's clear that they saw talent and that somebody was intuitive enough to understand that he would be able to execute on it uh, because he definitely did pull through. So, yeah. You know what I appreciate with Robert Eggers is he is a visionary that does not compromise on his vision. Mm -hmm. Um, Typically with these very successful art house directors, you know, he did the witch, he did the lighthouse. Typically a big studio would nab him and be like, okay, you're going to direct fast and furious 10. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And you're going to do exactly what we want you to do. Mm -hmm. But with him, they're like, they saw those two films and he probably presented, um, I forget the production company focus. I think, Mm -hmm. um, like I want to do this Viking epic and I'm going to need a lot of money, but this is my vision for it. And they're like, you Mm -hmm. know what? Let's do it. Yeah. And they didn't like mess around with his uh, vision <laughs> at all. And you can tell because like you can tell that an artist made this movie with no uh, compromisation going on. Yeah, absolutely. I, he talked about that a little bit, too, in one of the interviews that I read. Uh, and it really came down to in the edit is where I think the studio got more involved. Mm. And he said that that was, again, a very difficult part of the process because he's used to on these smaller films having full control over the final cut of the film. And here he didn't. And they were pushing him to make what he called the most entertaining version of the film. And he said that I could have been really upset about that. But I instead myself and my editor, we recognize that we can still carry out our vision by taking these studio notes and uh, figuring out how to use them while still Mm -hmm. maintaining our vision. And I think the fact that he captured what he did in production meant that the raw material is, you know, somewhat limited of what you can then do with it. So I think a lot of that vision was still there. But what you said earlier about just being like completely sucked into it from right from the get go Uh, He seems to attribute that to being forced to have to think about it from a more mass audience perspective of like, how can we craft this in such a way that really will draw in more audience members rather than just art house people. And so, yeah, I think that that's just a really good example of how a studio director relationship can end up working in a positive way. It doesn't have to be this thing where the director has to give up their creative vision in order to do the notes, but they actually can come together and both succeed at what they want. Because I agree, it really feels like his artistic creative vision was maintained, um, but it has a lot of the polish of what you would expect from a more mass market film. Right. That's interesting. I'm just glad that the studio didn't mess around with it, kind of like uh, Blade Runner. Yeah. Where they're like, we need a voiceover. People are not going to understand what's yes. happening. Yeah, that would have been horrifying, a voiceover in the Northmen. <laughs> it was about then I realized I needed to avenge my father. <laughs> am I in love with this woman? I think I am. <laughs> With some saxophone music, yeah. <laughs> oh, speaking of, we didn't even talk about Anya Taylor-Joy yet. The yeah. Witch returns mm-hmm. to a Robert Eggers project, and that's what really sold me in the beginning. I was like, they're reuniting once again. Because nice. like that's how I found out about her to begin with. She was in The Witch. Yeah, same. I think that was my first encounter. 
Yeah, and like her career exploded as, you know, deservingly so because like mm-hmm. she is incredible. Having her involvement with this story, like it's really focused in on Alexander Skarsgård and like as I was watching the film, I didn't know what I was expecting. Um <laughs> I was like is cuz I knew he was in it and I was like is he going to be the villain? Like where, where is he going to come into play? And then he ends up being Amalith uh, grown yeah. up. And then I was wondering, where's Anya Taylor-Joy? How is she going to fit into it? And she was one of the slaves that he comes across. And they have this, it's not even forced. It's kind of like it just genuinely occurs where they have this romance. And, you know, it grows throughout the entire film. It doesn't feel forced. And I'm glad about that. Because like a lot of movies, when they do a romance it doesn't feel genuine. Like there's like actual chemistry on screen between these two actors. It was really nice. Yeah. I love that. It wasn't just a meet cute scene where they suddenly fall in love and then it's all just, you know, uh, sunshine and roses at that point, but you actually see their relationship grow through their practical interactions as mm-hmm. slaves together is like, how are they helping each other survive this horrible situation uh, and achieve their ultimate goals that they both have separately, but they're working together to do it. And I think that, uh, at least from my experience in life, that's how you develop real human relationships is actually doing things with people, not just seeing them once and suddenly being smitten by them. Uh, so yeah, I would totally agree that by involving them in this sort of process throughout the rising action portion of Act 2, I think that it did help sell that as a more authentic relationship. Right. And... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What's interesting about this story is I, I didn't also, I didn't think it was going to take that turn. So like he's a part of this band of pillagers and they completely ransack this village and they round up. I don't know who they killed off, probably the men, but they rounded up a lot of uh, women to be sold into slavery, manual labor uh, for other Viking tribes. And he gets word that this one group that they're sending off to Iceland has to do with his uncle. His uncle is in control of this land. And he was like, well, I'm going to do what I have to do. So he takes a branding iron. And he brands himself, makes it look like he's a slave, and then he jumps on a boat, and then that's where he meets Anya Taylor-Joy and the other slaves. So he pretends to be a slave, and that was that was wild. I was like, I did not see that coming, but it was cool. Yeah, yeah, it was a really interesting way, and that's where I, I would be interested to at some point go back and look at the source material that this was drawn from to see if that particular aspect was a part of it or if that was created for this story in particular, because... 
the idea, I guess my assumption as I was watching the film is like, oh, well, he seems like a relatively, uh, like he's one of the elite berserkers that goes in first. So like he must have some sway with this group. And so he could probably just say, I want to hop on the boat with you guys and go there. Um, but he didn't, he did this whole slave thing. And I think that that's another area where Eggers trusts the audience to sort of piece together what's going on instead of him having to say out loud that, well, I have a clever plan. If I hide myself as a slave, then once I get there, they won't know that it's me. But you figure that out as it's going along, that this was actually part of a, a more clever plan, which gives you that other side. You've just seen the sort of bestial warrior side of him. But then you very quickly after that, see the more clever insidious side where he has this wit about him where he can come up with this plan to insert himself into uh his uncle's family area and then start to unfold his plan right and a lot of it is visually told to you a lot of visual storytelling mm -hmm. is uh given to the audience when it comes to all of his uh actions and plans throughout this entire film i'm just glad that it wasn't spoon-fed to us um yeah just like, for example, Blade Runner again. Like, hmm, I need to avenge my father. Let me pretend to be a slave. <laughs> ah, those people cooking over there. I could take their branding iron. And like, it, it, would, it would just derail the entire movement. Everything about this film is visually told to you. Like, even from the first frame where we get to Amulet's uh, home city, which it's on the banks of, like, this uh, uh, city, and it's like... These waves are crashing and these boats are coming in. You instantly know that you're being transported to another world. Mm -hmm. And not only is this other world different than our own, it's more violent uh, than our own world. And it shows like through nature and people betraying each other and killing each other. And uh, like there's no safety to be found, whether it's within the walls of your city or outside in nature. And it perfectly illustrates that. So like, it makes sense for Robert Eggers to visually give out this information as the film progresses instead of, you know, ex uh, having exposition dumps here and there. There's like a, almost no exposition dumps except for maybe like one scene, but it's like artistically done. And that's the, the seer scene with uh, Bjork. Right. Oh, right. Yeah. Where she gives the prophecy and everything. Yeah. And I mean, it's that you can't tell a story without having any exposition in the dialogue because uh, <laughs> you have to tell the audience some information. <laughs> but uh, I think that, yeah, it's always done in a way where it feels believable that this character would tell that character these things. They're not saying it only for the sake of the audience to understand what's going on. And I feel like that's where your exposition dumps become a problem is when it's clear that you would never have said that to that person, but you said it so that I would hear it. Um, and here that never happened. It always felt like information was being delivered in a way that made sense or was plausible within the story world itself. Right. Like it's, it's very tastefully done. Um, because like, I don't know if you saw like the South Park uh, COVID specials, but like they're in the future of like, 20 years from now and like the exposition exposition dumps are like you know since we're living in the future guys we all know this is happening because we're living in the future now <laughs> and it's like done to a comedic uh sure <laughs> comedic way but like yeah this this movie is like so good but like let's dive into a little bit of uh amulet's plight um so he pretends to be a slave and there's a lot of prophecy and destiny intertwined with this character because like uh when he encounters 
whether it's a vision or a supernatural being or like his imagination, he encounters uh, the singer Bjork and she's dressed like kind of like a witch. And like she tells him, you are going to uh, avenge your father in a lake of fire. And I think she says like, you will have created a kingdom or something like that. Like your, your lineage goes on essentially. Yeah, she, I think she even said something that was maybe even more of a straight hint about, like, you will start a maiden kingdom or something like that, that I think hinted at his daughter that he was eventually okay. going to have being right. the one. And, like, you see that in the imagery near the end when it goes back mm -hmm. to that tree of lineage and you see the daughter is the one with the sword and the scepter. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that that was really interesting. I think that just prophecy in general, I mean, that's another connection with Macbeth is a lot of Macbeth is him trying to figure out like, what does this prophecy mean? Like you gave me this prophecy. I know it's going to come true, but what does it mean? Cause it's a little bit confusing how the, you know, more magically sounding words you said translate into the real world. So even things like at the gates of hell, uh, as a human hearing that, like, what does that mean? I don't know, but I guess I'm going to kill him. So I'll just have to go try to kill him until I figure out where the gates of hell are for me to kill him at. Uh, yeah. So I think that that was definitely an interesting setup again, rooted in the story world that that's, you know, giving this prophecy that that seems very fitting for uh, the time period that then gives you some idea along with the character of how things might go, but in a more cryptic way where you're trying to figure out how this is all going to come together. Right. And like, that was like the first seed of like, it makes you guess like what's real and what isn't because like after that prophecy is given to him about like, his future and what he's destined to be. Um, there's also another scene where he acquires uh, the weapon that he was meant to, to hold, oh, yeah. to wield to kill his uncle. And that whole sequence of like, so he finds, I guess, uh, old tomb, I guess, this uh, Viking king I was buried with his ship. And mm -hmm. he goes, and then it goes full Skyrim. That was like, yes. full Skyrim moment. <laughs> He's into a video game. He gets like a health bar above his head. <laughs> <laughs> but like he starts fighting this uh, uh, resurrected zombie person. And like it's it's a very nice uh, choreographed uh, fight yeah. scene. But like at the end of it when he defeats the king, um, it like the camera pans and like the body is still on the throne of where he started. And it's like, wait a minute. Did he imagine all that? What just happened? <laughs> like, yeah, what did yeah. you think about that? Uh, well, I immediately thought of the Green Knight because there's that scene in the mm -hmm. Green Knight where it pans over and he's dead and his mm -hmm. body's rotted away, but then it comes back all the way around and he's not. And so it leaves you kind of wondering uh, which version is real. So was this just, was the fight something that Amleth imagined in his head that like he sees himself as this epic hero and so imagined what it would be like if he had to fight this undead viking in order to secure mm -hmm. the sword but then it turns out the reality was just that he could take the sword and it was fine um or is that true and it was just sort of this like again more magical where the whole thing sort of resets now back to how oh. it was and he then receives the sword um so i honestly didn't know what to make of it I, I guess at that point in the film there was few enough sort of magical things that had happened or fan fantastic elements that uh, I was inclined to believe that he had imagined the fight and really was just taking the sword. But then there are, there continues to be some more fantastic elements where like the sword won't come out of the sheath except at night, which is like a magical property of the sword. 
And so then that reinforces the idea that, oh, there is more than just mundane reality going on here. So maybe there was more to that scene than I initially thought. You know, after hearing you explain it, I'm more inclined to believe that it was a a mystical encounter because like leaving the theater until right now, I was like, he imagined it. Like, did, <laughs> is he envisioning, is he envisioning himself as like this powerful warrior? Um, but it makes more sense for him to slay the monster and then uh, the monster kind of like resets itself. Uh, it, that makes more sense. The knight yeah, goes into the know. layer to slay the dragon, and yeah. then he gets the prize, which is the night blade. And then the night blade only comes out of the sheath at night is when he uses it. So, okay, that makes sense. I was like, oh, he's just imagining things. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I could still go either way. I'm, I'm really not sure, so I'll probably look up what some other people have thought about that scene. But, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, I'm more inclined to think it was a mystical encounter. But anyway, so he gets this blade and like the way this movie is structured is very similar to, I think the Green Knight did this too with like the different chapters. Mm -hmm. uh, might be confusing it with another movie, but like this movie does like the little sub chapters and it's all in like the ancient runes of like mm -hmm. the Vikings. So it's very, it's a very striking aesthetic and I really appreciate that. And it gives you a little 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 bit of information on what's to come in this mm -hmm. upcoming scene and i think it was called the hunger of the night blade or the night blade yeah feeds something along something those like lines yeah and i was like oh here we go <laughs> and this entire sequence or this little chapter of the the story is like so beautifully done because like he finally finds where his uncle is and he comes face to face with him multiple times and he doesn't take the opportunity to slay him. He waits. Do you think, why do you think he waits? I'm just curious. And other than the whole rule of three uh, sure. filmmaking <laughs> technique. Uh, there's two reasons that kind of stood out to me while I was watching the film. The first was, I think, when he first tried to kill him right after he got the sword and then snuck back out, he couldn't pull it out of the sheath but I couldn't tell if he was just hesitating or if he couldn't actually pull it out. So that was a little confusing for me. And at that point I thought like, Oh, cause the prophecy said that he needs to kill him at this specific place. And this mm -hmm. isn't that place. So the sword doesn't want to work for him. Uh, but then after that, that was just my general assumption was that he was refraining because he recognized that the um, prophecy had not lined up yet. Like the stars had not aligned for it to be the right time and place for him to do it. And I think maybe he says right. that to Anya Taylor Joyce character at one point that like the the time isn't right yet i have to wait and then when the time is ready i will fulfill my destiny something mm -hmm. along those lines so i think that that may have been what was my understanding of what was running through amelis head at those points okay. of that if i'm going to follow through on this prophecy and it's going to work out i do need to wait till all of the elements come together right that that makes sense like you don't want to it's kind of like you need to follow the predetermined path in front of you and you can't deviate or else you'll fail. Uh, because in that moment, maybe he wouldn't have killed him. Maybe his mm -hmm. entire mission would have been foiled if he didn't wait. So it's a testament of like you were given specific instructions. <laughs> you were given a promise that this will happen. You just need to wait for it to happen. Yeah. So offline, we talked about kind of like 
Robert Eggers' visual style when it comes to uh, filmmaking with The Lighthouse specifically. He had uh, references of like classical paintings, fine arts um, that almost served as like storyboards for uh, the film. You said that there was a specific reference uh, influence for The Northman. Would you like to unpack that? Yeah, so another thing that Eggers talked about in one of the interviews I was reading uh, was that he drew inspiration from a film called, I think it was The Vikings or Vikings from the 50s. And then from, I think he said he watched Spartacus as well, just for some of the choreography and kind of grand nature of that narrative. Uh, but then also Conan, which he said, the you know, Conan the Barbarian, he watched a lot as a kid and over and over <laughs> again. So he said, for better or worse, that was definitely an influence as well. Uh, and then I saw on Twitter, somebody had actually put some side by side images from Conan the Barbarian and the Northmen. And again, just like with the lighthouse, you can see some striking similarities between uh, some of the framing and composition. Of course, I mean, every film can center a character in the frame and every film can have three characters in the frame spread out like this. So uh, it may only go so far to make the similarities, but I think it's clear that, you know, anybody who's encountered media can't help but allow that media to influence how they then try to create something themselves. And then when you hear the director specifically say that they've been influenced by this, I think it's pretty reasonable to to draw those connections. Yeah, like... Aren't all artists uh, responsible for, like, attributing people that they seek inspiration from, people that they look up to? So if Robert Eggers grew up watching Conan, Arnold Schwarzenegger as Conan the Barbarian, it makes sense that he would have those images ingrained in his mind that he wants to. Once it's his time to make a movie, he's going to implement uh, those framings. and So it makes sense. What was interesting for me, because like when I was watching the film, there was one striking image that I was like, I've seen that before, but I don't know where. I don't know if it's a statue. I don't know if it's a painting. I spent hours yesterday trying to find where this image came from. And like my only reference point was that, uh, and I showed it to you, it was this Mm -hmm. West African flag that shows uh, two silhouettes of uh, men sword fighting and one of them decapitates the other one um it's from the kingdom of benin b-e-n-i-n and i don't know where that was inspired from but it just has that striking image of two people sword fighting and one of them cuts the head off of the other and And even on a red background which you know they're on the volcano with all the fire yes (laughs) so to talk about that scene uh so at the end of the film they come face to face. So Amleth's uncle Fjolnir and him have this final battle and it's on the backdrop of a volcano, you know, active volcano. There's lava all around them and they're sword fighting naked, which is a feat to fight naked. Yeah, that was, (laughs) especially in the heat, man. (laughs) And it comes to this climactic end where um, Amleth cuts off his uncle's head, but at the same time, his uncle stabs uh, Amalith, I think through the heart. And it was such a somber but fitting end to this story. And I was like, whoa, this is how you end a movie. You have (laughs) the striking image of them fighting and then the catharsis at the end of the film. And then you're left with that as you exit the theater. It was masterfully done. That is how you do a tragedy, I think. (laughs) <laughs> um, 
But like that image of when it happened, it was like side by side fighting. They kill each other. And I was like, where have I seen this before? <laughs> it was such a striking image. It's still burned in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, that's a good point about just a good way to end it. And I think that's where, again, the the maybe like thematically in the film, it still is telling this story that those who live by the sword will die by the sword. So the initial perpetrator uh, of the death of the king, um, but also the son seeking revenge, both of them do not survive this encounter. And so it's interesting to see how that all comes together in the end there. But yeah, I, I agree. A very striking image. And I think that that's part of Egger's style of just this methodical camera, very intentional placement of the camera of the, like mm-hmm. taking into account the full mise-en-scene of everything that's in the shot at all times lends itself towards those striking images. I think you could press pause at most parts throughout this movie and it would just look like an intentionally taken photograph. Um, but the the ending definitely with the, really high contrast of the flames and the darkness and the two men fighting back and forth just came to a really good climactic image for the film that brought together a lot of uh, what was being discussed throughout the whole film. Oh yeah. Like aesthetics were on full display, uh, not only in the cinematography, but also like those dudes were jacked. They had like yeah. not even an ounce of fat on them. I was like, Oh my God. Every yeah, time man. I watch a movie like this, I'm like, man, I should go back to the gym. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, now you have a, a good uh, aim to strive for. <laughs> so before we go into the final segments, I do want to talk about one thing before we get there. Um, and it has to do with the ending of the film. So Amalith, uh, after he, well, Anya Taylor-Joy drugs the entire army of oh, yeah. uh, the fighters. And, you know, it's it's easy pickings for Amalith to pick off all of the soldiers. So he finally goes to his mother and there's this, insane revelation that I did not expect where she actually hated his father from the beginning. Um, He took her by force, which was not information given to the audience until that Mm -hmm. very moment. And he actually, she actually fell in love with his uncle, uh, Amalith's main target, this entire journey. And he is left with a choice of like, whether to believe her, whether to kill her, uh, whether to not save her. And, she does one strategic move that I was like, oh, what? This is happening. <laughs> what did you think about all that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was definitely, uh, again, like in terms of narrative structure, a really well-placed midpoint to the film where it seems like he's about to succeed at his quest. And then all of a sudden, this revelation creates this reversal of fortune for the character and things just fall apart. So uh I was expecting something like that to happen, but I definitely wasn't expecting it to be that. And I think that it's it's really well done in terms of storytelling because the audience fully believes and understands uh, Amleth's perspective because they only have the information that Amleth had for the most right. part up to that point. There's a couple of hints at the beginning uh, that maybe um, the king and queen... Gudrun is her name, I suppose. Queen Gudrun. Uh, we're not on great terms, but definitely you don't get the sense that she was a slave that was brought here and then potentially raped and then forced to be the queen and et cetera, et cetera. So that was definitely a really great revelation that forces the audience to also then question whether she's lying or not. Um, but yeah, I, I think I, what maybe you're referring to with the the last little ploy she has is she goes in for the kiss and it's like, yes. I could be your queen uh, if you yes. go and kill Fjolnir. And you're like, wait, what? So wait, was that you? What are you saying? What is going on? But then it seems like, like you said, it's just a ploy and she tries to stab mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. as he's also seems to be very confused about what's going on and why his mom's <laughs> trying to kiss him at this point. But yeah. <laughs> so a little bit of a mixture of uh, Oedipus Rex, uh, yeah. Hamlet. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, I was like, he's not going to fall for that. <laughs> no way. That's that's gross. But like, I was like, okay, we're going full classics right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was great. Okay, so we reached the end of the show. So what we like to do on Syndicate is off the fence. So we are we are going to get off the fence definitively on a few questions regarding this film. So the first question I have for you, Cam. Do you think Amleth would have won his final duel at the base of the volcano against his uncle, uh, Fjolnir, if he had the high ground? <laughs> I mean, we all know. I mean, it's it's cinematic history that if you have the high ground, you always win volcano fights. So <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, I think you would have. No, unless Fielner would have done a backflip. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they had very level ground. That's why it was a stalemate. <laughs> Obi Wan had probably seen the film or had heard oh, this right. story, right. and so then he learned from that, and that's how he knew to be on the higher ground. I don't know. Yes, it was part of his Jedi chain. This yes. old Earth s- story <laughs> informed me of my decisions. But anyways, since this was Robert Eggers' third film, his third hit in a row, do you think he cemented himself as one of the great directors of our time? I think so. I think, well, it'll be interesting to see how the box office numbers come out for the Northmen again, with especially what he said about trying to push it towards a more most entertaining version of the film. And if that does actually then draw in a broader audience than probably the witch or the lighthouse did. And especially if that does, then yes, I think absolutely. He's going to have earned his place uh, among the directors that will continue to be talked about and their films referenced for years to come. Absolutely. I really hope the Northman does well at the box office because like not only is this movie, wonderfully made but it's also a commercial hit so it's like he will make more of these movies in the future um but i totally think like even taking these three films uh the witch the lighthouse the northman just alone by itself like he's already in my mind cemented as one of the greatest directors of our lifetime so hopefully he doesn't make a bomb next (laughs) that was no pressure but I, I think he'll be. I wonder how many films he'll do. If he'll be like uh, Quentin Tarantino and be like, I'm going to bow yeah. out at 10. <laughs> just need to do 10. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I'll be interested again just to see what the next project he decides to do is. Because from some of the interviews, it sounds like he does want to go back and like scale back down to do something a little less uh, grand in scope. So I'm I'm definitely interested to see where he goes with that, where he takes it. Right. And... I think that's also, I mean, he definitely proved himself like he can make those grand movies as well as mm-hmm. the uh, stripped down ones like The Lighthouse where it's just yeah. two actors, yep. one uh, location. So either way, I think he'll be just fine. But I'm yeah. just wondering if he does go back to a more stripped down uh, production, what that will look like and also what genre that will be because he's done horror film period mm-hmm. piece and then the next one was a psychological thriller and then this one's an an, an epic uh, yeah 
So I just wonder where he'll traverse next. Maybe sci-fi? Who knows? That would be cool. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> that would be awesome. So speaking of grandiose, will the Northmen be revered, in your opinion, uh, in cinematic history like Ben-Hur is regarded as or even Cleopatra? I don't think it probably will get to that level. I think that the... Damn. I'm not sure it stands out enough from mm. what else is being made right now to really earn something that maybe will be that fastidious in film history. But again, I mean, if it does really well at the box office, it's possible that that combination of really solid, artfully done cinema plus recognition by a large group of people that it may. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't think I would, I would probably think it will be as well-known as Ben-Hur or Cleopatra. That's valid. I'm going to be optimistic <laughs> because like, I think. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. While it doesn't really stand out when it comes to like other films, especially Marvel films, I think where it does stand out is its use on practicality. Um, there's a lot of in-camera shots, a lot of practical mm -hmm. effects uh, going on, which uh, the Northman's competition relies heavily on CGI. Yeah. When you look at like Avengers Endgame, where it has like 50 people uh, running by, <laughs> but it's all computer-generated effects, yeah. which is a feat. But like in your mind, you're watching that and you're like, it's fake. But yeah. like when you're watching the Northman you're sucked into it because it's like, oh, these are real actors all interacting at the same time. For example, that one one long tracking shot mm -hmm. of the siege in the beginning, it's like you're sucked in because it's like you're watching all the choreography going on, all these actors interacting with each other. So hopefully that's enough to make it uh, be set apart. But watching this, I don't know. I felt like I was watching cinema history uh, because like I was watching it and I'm like, there's not a lot of movies like this. There's not a lot of grand epic movies that are done like this. A lot of yeah. them rely heavily on CGI where it's mm -hmm. like they have fake backgrounds, uh, fake props. But like this is like 
grounded and real. You see the dirt flying <laughs> in the faces of all these people. Um, so hopefully, hopefully it is re- regarded as like Ben Hur or Cleopatra because it's been a hot minute since a grand film to that scale was made. So hopefully more will be made. Yeah, I would say maybe within like the historical, uh, maybe particularly Viking films, it will definitely float to the top of those. But I think, at least when I hear Ben Hur, I think lots of people, even that aren't really like into movies or aren't necessarily into historical movies, still know about Ben Hur and are aware of that. So I think that it may not gain that level of notoriety, but I definitely think within right. its genre, probably it will be one of the remembered ones. I agree to that. Like a lot of people know about those because it's like cultural milestones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know if this is a cultural milestone, but it's like in the cinema world, it's like, oh damn, this is a yeah. this is a really good movie. So my final question for you: Would you recommend The Northman to a friend? It would depend on the friend. It is a very gory movie, so I know <laughs> that some of my friends just don't like watching violence like that on screen. So I would definitely want them to be prepared, knowing that they're walking into something that definitely is very visceral uh, and doesn't pull any punches in terms of the violence shown on screen, which, in my opinion, does contribute to the questions thematically about whether using violence to this end is worthwhile or whether it's valid, etc. Um, but I know that that's just not everybody's cup of tea. But I definitely have people I would 100% recommend it to. So. Right. Um, that's, that's a really good topic that I want to unpack in a later, later time, not right now, um, when it comes to violence in uh, art. Um, but would I recommend it? Um, I totally would. Uh, same thing with you, like a little disclaimer and asterisks, <laughs> like, by the way, people are going to get messed up in this movie. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's not real, but it's like, it's made to look real. And yeah. It's very violent. And like when I was in the theater, I was like gripping my, my seat. I was like, yeah, oh my I God. felt myself <laughs> tensing up quite a few times. <laughs> like this is um, exciting and awesome. And this is how cinema should be portrayed. But it's like, oh my God, this is like really, really intense. Uh, who would I recommend this to? A friend that would really enjoy that type of uh, art. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think that's the same with The Witch and The Lighthouse as well. Like those are very well crafted films, but they're definitely not made for everybody and i wouldn't expect everybody to enjoy them and i think that that's okay right like with those two it's like they're slow burns and like that's mm-hmm. a completely different uh acquired taste that too, yeah <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that's that's uh really interesting and then like as i was leaving or when i was like pondering about it today i was like what would be an appropriate age to show somebody this movie mm. and like i was thinking i was like hmm maybe 16 i think that would be probably the lowest age i would go yeah and that would be if it was a a 16 year old that i had had enough conversations with to know that they had a maturity level to be able to recognize that this isn't glorifying violence but it's actually potentially questioning or challenging the use Mm -hmm. of violence Uh, because i think that that's always the danger with any type of r-rated in quotes content is that if you're not mature enough to recognize how it's being utilized artfully then you may just see it as a glorification of those things right and i think when you look at it like we were saying earlier um live by the sword die by the sword um like it there is a cathartic moment where it's like he achieved um what he was striving towards but at the price of he's dead Mm -hmm. now (laughs) yeah did he avenge his father absolutely uh, what was the cost? His life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's like, do you want to make that trade? No. Yeah. Not a lot of people would. And this is why it's a hero's journey. 
displayed on screen because it's not the normal path that people go yes. on. That's a great point. Yeah, you don't make movies about mundane things that people always would choose and do. So, <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Okay, so Cam, are you ready to close this out? I am. Okay, let's do it. But that's it for this time on Syndicate. We hope you enjoyed yourself. We've been talking about The Northman. Please check it out where it is available. And before we go, thank you so much, Cam, for coming on to Syndicate again. Absolutely. I always love being here and chatting with you. Yeah, we always pick great movies. So let's keep the trend going. <laughs> Amen to that. But if you'd like to see more of Cam's work, please head over to camlewisfilm.com to see his latest projects there. But if you'd like to keep this conversation going, please add us on your favorite social media platform at Syndicates. That is Syndicate on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. Or join the Discord server where you can catch myself along with other podcasters and listeners talking about this film and others at syndicate.com forward slash Discord. And until next time, stop that scroll and spend more time watching. Goodbye.